here we are continuing in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. Mark, um, do, would you read for us maybe all the way from 4 to 11? Um, on this on this discipline, what a fantastic thought! And I would just have to think none of us um, probably naturally think correctly about God's discipline, uh, like like this passage is challenging us to. Yes, uh, <clears throat> Hebrews twelve four. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Good. Thanks. Scott, one, two, three, four, at least six times, seven times their uh, discipline and, uh, and seeing it as a good thing. Can you kind of give us some, some of your general thoughts there from 5 to 11? Yeah, well, one, one guy, one commentator, he, he just he wrote this that I thought was, was really helpful about these verses. And, and he said, uh, it gives the kind of teaching that we don't notice when the sun is shining like the light from a lighthouse, it doesn't stand out very well in the day. But when night comes and storms begin to blast against us, it suddenly blazes with a light that is essential if we are to find our way. When God's hand of discipline falls, Christians greatly need the encouragement and instruction found here. I just thought that was great. Like when everything's going well, we don't see that the lighthouse, you know, it doesn't really benefit us. But when we're, it's, the storm is hit, it's dark, we, we need the, the comfort that this, that this section gives us. I, I think of John Newton's, the book from Tony Reinke on the, the chapter on the discipline of trials, that chapter just sort of changed me big time. I think I, I remember I was reading in Guatemala when we were traveling there and just so many things that he brings out of, of the goodness of God in trials. I just mentioned two. One, he says, uh, God will bring trials to reveal our idols. And he said so often it's sort of like uh, sediment at the bottom of a glass. And we don't even realize it's there. I'm thinking like the idol of comfort, for example. And God brings this trial and he said the trial will like snap the, 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 the idol of comfort comes flying up. The bottle gets shaken up and the sediment rises to the surface. And all of a sudden now we see we have this massive idol of comfort. But we wouldn't have seen it unless God shakes it up, unless God brings this trial. Well, that's the goodness of God. He's revealing sin in us, which is, which is a, it's a grace of God. It may hurt in the moment. But it really is, it's a grace of God when he, when he bring, brings a trial in. Uh, second thing, he said, one of the things he says in there is uh, that trials will, will make us pray. So often we're just, our prayer is just so lackadaisical, we're so dry. We, and he said it breathes new life into our prayers. Our prayers lay us low, they lay us at the feet of Jesus, and they keep us there. I mean, it's just so true how often our prayer life is just sort of like mundane, but as soon as a trial hits, yeah. I mean, it's just like, it is so different. And I, and I remember coming back from Guatemala, I got very sick, 
right before the church started, had horrible pain in, in my stomach. But I remember I had such sweet communion with God during that time of intense pain. And I had read this chapter and I'd read something from Spurgeon where Spurgeon was the most pain he'd ever experienced. And he, it was so painful. He asked everybody to leave the room and he had this sweet moment with God. He's like, God, you're my father. And if my son was hurting, I would want to do everything I could to comfort him. So like, please comfort me. It was just this sweet. And he said the pain never, uh, the pain went away and it never came back to that severe of pain in his whole life. And I had read that, read this. And so that turned that trial of my issue much less than Spurgeon's, but it just ha I had this sweet communion with God. Well, if God doesn't bring that trial, I miss out on the sweet communion with him. So I just think we've got to see his fatherly love, his, his goodness in the trials. Scott, Isn't there a pretty, okay. go ahead, pop up. No, that is really good. Uh, you know, we, Shriner uh, had this little uh, paragraph and I'm not gonna read the whole paragraph, but he said, we shouldn't look at it at, at, at these, uh, at this one as punitive but as corrective and educative. Mm -hmm. So to educate us, to, uh, to, to correct us, to well point out sin in our life. And, and you know, that's not bad things. I mean, that's what our parents do or should do as, as we're growing up and, and to protect us. And God's just our heavenly father and he knows best how to, how to implement all this. Mm -hmm. Now that's right. Shriner is unbelievable in Hebrews, isn't he? I, I don't remember oh, much about. I, I took his uh, class on the um, New Testament survey and don't remember much of it, but I do remember him on <laughs> Hebrews a lot about perseverance and endurance, and that was really he's he's great on that. Scott, could you post maybe on the group me or in the blog? Didn't uh, Ranky make a list of? Um, those things that trials do for us in that mm -hmm. chapter yes he did that, i remember that being life-changing and and uh and i think i forgot most of those too mark could you uh help us there on five to eleven yes um he's quoting here from proverbs 3 verses 11 and 12 uh this idea of not regarding lightly the lord's discipline not being weary when reproved by him for the lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives um, I think the main thing here is the temptation Christians have when they're experiencing the painful side of discipline is to become discouraged, thinking the Lord is not caring for them, and to give up. And it's actually the wrong interpretation exactly. So, I mean, look at it again. V verse 5, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved. So the, the, the temptation is to be weary, to give up, to say, God doesn't love me. Why is all this happening? If this was happening, would a God who loved me really let this happen? This couldn't be a good God. I don't know if he's even there. I, I'm done with this whole Christian thing. I thought it was about prosperity. This is not working. I'm out. And so you, you get weary and you give up and you, you quit the race. But then the author of Hebrews and Proverbs, verse 6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So he says, no, actually... The, the painful difficulties that every Christian endures are signs not of God's absence or apathy. They are actually signs of God's fatherly love. So God mm -hmm. is loving you. I mean, when my heart is right and when I'm doing all this the right way, when I'm trying to correct my son, for instance, Micah, the right way, as he's almost four, uh, I mean, it really is not a fun thing to discipline your kids. It's not. And so 
I actually have to be sort of spiritually in a pretty good place to do it exactly when and how and, you know, it should be done. And when my heart is just, when I'm committed to the Lord and I know I, I don't want to do this, this is as bothersome to me as it is to anybody. I've got to take Mike aside. I've got to give him some swats on the leg or whatever i got to do for what he just did. That, that is an act of love. And to do it consistently is extremely difficult. I mean, you guys know who have been parents longer, but it's just, you, you want to just do something else. You, you don't want to stop every five minutes and have to deal with some thing going on where, why did you hit this or why did you say that? So, so loving discipline, yes, it's painful to Micah, but it is, it is an incredible act of love from a parent to do it consistently in a godly way. I mean, it just, it takes tremendous effort and, and, and you have to think about it and be very careful. And so God is loving us perhaps as much as ever uh, when, he is, when he is sovereign over the difficulties that we're, that we're going through. Yeah, and all four of us have dads realize how difficult it is to discipline well. We're, we're without uh, all the, the knowledge sometimes as to how to do it best. Certainly, don't we love our children, but not in a way that God loves us. But we know that God is perfect. He is perfect in the way he disciplines us. He is our perfect father. He will never over-discipline. He will never under-discipline. He will never grow weary of the discipline that it's like, oh no, that's so many times he will continue to persevere in disciplining us when we need it. And, and so Mark, that's really good. I think about your bear illustration. I think if Mags was sitting in that seat next to the bear and I knew that the bear was getting ready to get Henri, I would do whatever I could do, no matter if it was painful to Mags or not, to get her away from the bear. And, uh, and so I think that's, you know, as, as fathers, we know that, um, and we do need, and, and the example here is, is great. We've seen the Lord um, discipline us. I know my dad, I've told the story of when my uh, dad was tired of my temper. I threw my brother Mike against the deep freeze. Uh, I'm still pretty convinced he deserved it, uh, but he went up and cried and stuff. And so I was in huge trouble, and I've been in trouble a lot because of my temper and um, been spanked with the, the yardstick that you got at the county fair. But this time, Dad got his belt out and absolutely let me have it with the belt. And I stuck my hands back there to protect, so then my hands were really sore. And my bottom, even though my bottom's paralyzed right now, I'm still convinced that it would still be sore if I could feel it. It was, And the next time I went in to throw Mike against the deep freeze, I thought, it's not worth the pain. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. And it worked. Dad's discipline worked in really putting the clamps on my horrible temper. And, uh, and I'm so thankful for that. Now, it did not seem pleasant at the time. Later on, however, it produced a harvest of righteousness because uh, he was faithful to discipline us. We know that God's 100% faithful to discipline us when we need it. And God is treating us as sons. And so another reason never to whine, complain, gripe, be bitter about our trials. God's using those trials to discipline us. Um, and, and Papa, you used uh, those three fancier words that from Shriner, but it's, it's to correct us. It's to train us. It's to instruct us. Uh, Scott, any more from 5 to 11 there? Yeah, one, one other thing uh, that one commentator, he, he mentioned David and his son Absalom and how Absalom was a mess, you know, rebelled against David. 
and the army fights against uh, David's army, and then Absalom is killed in battle, and all the horrible things Absalom did. And David's response to Absalom, you know, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, he's grieving over his son, but then he, he turned to that and he said, how must God therefore care for each of us? Like how much more so, you know, God's love for us, the beloved little children he is so carefully raising. Isn't this great news that God loves us as sons? And it's just incredible. I mean, David against his rebellious son loves him so much, but God loves us so much more, cares about us so much more. And just, that is just this huge comfort, I think, in trials. And he's bringing, like I think Spurgeon said, he mixes in just the right amount of suffering. I mean, it's just perfectly weighed and measured. You can see him doing it in, in his mercy, and he, and he gives it to us in love. And I just, that's the way we're, we're going to, we're going to, uh, progress through trials, even joyfully, I think, when we know it's from the loving Father uh, yeah. towards us. And yeah, there, Papa. Oh, go ahead, Scott. I mean, uh, Mark. Well, just, just real quick, the, something that's interesting here. So just, I will say a couple things. Maybe these are so so obvious they're not even worth saying, but I found them to be conf this idea of discipline a little confusing as to what exactly is this. Um, so just maybe just a couple quick things. I think they've already been sort of said, but discipline, as far as I can tell. All difficulty and suffering that comes into the Christian life is God's fatherly discipline. I, I don't yeah. see an exception to this. And just in context, I got a thumbs up from Fred there. The, in context, look at verse 3, segueing into the topic, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So even hostility from non-Christians, behind that is a sovereign God loving us with his heavenly disciplinary purposes. And so um, you could look, we won't have time to go there, but in chapter 10, he talks about being publicly exposed to reproach and some of them going to prison and their property being plundered. That, that conversation from chapter 10, I think Schreiner makes an argument that it, sh it should be informing this section in 12 to say that was a form of discipline. So that when non-Christians, whether in the government in part or just regular people, when non-Christians were persecuting them and plundering their goods, that was God behind that, God lovingly disciplining them. Um, perhaps testing their faith, perhaps weakening their hold on the material possessions of the world, you know, wh whatever it may be. So this is a very high view of the sovereignty of God because yeah. behind Satan's uh, attack on Job was a purpose of God and behind Jesus's crucifixion was the purpose of God and behind our difficulty, whether it's persecution or cancer or a cold or an inconvenience, we have to see that God is behind those things, not as a mean God, but as a surgeon who uses his scalpel to cut us because he loves us and he's trying to get out of us what would kill us. And so it's the love of a surgeon to say, this, this, is, this sin inside of you is bound up like folly in the heart of a child and I have to get it out of you. And whatever it takes, whatever purpose I have, I'm going to cut you because I love you to, to get this thing out of you that would otherwise destroy you. And so I think all difficulty is God's loving discipline, and there is not a one-to-one -one correlation between how much a Christian suffers and how much a Christian sins. I think that's very important. Job is the obvious example. How much you suffer does not equal how much you sin, but we all need sanctification at all times. And so like the fish tank that Scott talked about, we all have sediment of sin in our soul that gets shaken up by trials. And so we should all learn and be educated by God in the, I guess Spurgeon calls the seminary of suffering, where God is working in us to train us and educate us and, and to improve our character. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, what men meant for evil, God meant for good. What you guys meant for evil with Joseph. Uh, God always means all trials, even when they're from other people, whatever they're from. 
Uh, Papa, you have some good stuff for us from five through 11. I think that uh, piggybacking on what Mark said, I, I think we've got to be real careful. I think, I think you're right, Mark. I think that's, this is the way God works in the life of a believer. If, if, if he, you know, he covers the non-believer because he says if, and then if you're, uh, if you're left without discipline, then you're a unbeliever or illegitimate children. So I think the way that he works is, is through discipline. Now, uh, I think we've got to be very careful about pointing fingers and, and say, well, this is because of so-and-so, or you're experiencing this, Jerry, because of so-and-so. Yes. I think we've got to be very careful to not play providence in someone's life. However, mm-hmm. I can personally testify that, and back to you, Jerry, for a second, that I've I've seen, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but in some some areas that God has disciplined me or educated me, where I've made mistakes, I've seen the all things work together too. The synergy that God can take my mistake and, and work it out for my good and his glory too. So, that, I mean, I, I think it's the way he, he works actually. Pop, I was, I I'm, thank you for bringing that up. That's so good. Cause I was just thinking the same thing in the end of verse 10, but he disciplines us for our good. So the good, like a Romans eight twenty eight, all things working together for good. The all things in Romans eight twenty eight, all things working in Romans eight thirty two whether that's through the pleasant times, oftentimes through the trials. We know they're working together for our good. So we're going to get into this, I guess, verses 12 through 17, maybe not uh, today, but uh, someday soon, and just seeing that um, we should be way more thankful for our trials, for God's discipline, for his love that that he's showing us. Jerry, I would like to turn. I would like to ask you a question, for, sort of maybe ending the the, the the discipline part there, the trials part. Uh, one thing I, I, that I, I thought about is something that is so encouraging has been encouraging for Liliana and I is looking back and seeing the faithfulness of God through through suffering. Uh, what little suffering we've gone through. I mean, going through infertility. That's one of the big things we look back and see our church and how we've been able to be involved in this church where we just wouldn't have been able to be involved had we had, you know, two or three kids like maybe we would have wanted. And just how God used that to knit our hearts to people. We just we just loved our discussion group so much. And just seeing the faithfulness of God has been a huge thing. But I was thinking about you, and especially in one of your your sermons where you talked about this after you broke your neck and you you started telling stories after story after story of the faithfulness of God. And I just thought maybe you could give a maybe an overview of that, starting with, I remember that all those people would come and pray at your house and sometimes you would forget that they were going to even be there, but starting with yeah. that and sort of leading to the college, leading to Amy Ediger and just, just kind of a highlight reel of God's faithfulness to you through immense suffering. Oh yeah. I've been thinking about more of those uh, with a little bit more time during this and Scott, it is a fascinating journey when you think about God's providence and connecting the dots. It's one of those dot to dot deals that goes where you get more than a thousand or a couple thousand or three thousand dots and they're all connected. And when you think back and you say, oh, that one, I had a bad attitude about that one. And look where it connected to this. And then that led to this. And then that led to this. And then that led to this. And so there are countless things that I, that I think about. One that is just um, on my mind 
right now is uh, when we became pregnant with Ben, and that was a lot of hoops to get there. Uh, God was crazy gracious. There's a hundred different scenarios that would be fun to talk about, even how we got there. But we knew at that point, Amy was on bed rest for a while because uh, Ben wasn't doing well in the womb. And, um, and, and so she wasn't able to help me get up and help me go to bed like she had done for the first six years of our marriage. And so we came home from Myrtle Beach one time. We saw a guy mowing our yard. It's like, why? Nobody had ever mowed our yard before. He's doing it when we drive in the driveway. He's mowing our yard. So I want to say, sir, appreciate you mowing our yard, but what's going on here? It had turned out that he had been a drunk driver. The government had, the authorities had given him a whole bunch of service hours that he had to do for somebody um, in order to kind of pay off the crime. And so it turns out to be that for months, he comes out, so we start talking, I'd never met him before, but for months, he lives next door, he starts coming over, because he can't drive, because he just got caught driving drunk, he comes over every morning, he comes over every evening, like 47 steps away from his house to our house, um, we get to talk about the Lord every morning. We get to talk about the Lord every evening. Um, and, and he helps us for those whole, uh, I don't know, seven months maybe of, of time when, when Amy couldn't help me. It was fascinating how the Lord used just that situation. And there's hundreds of stories, um, if I think about them, of one after another. I think of Mike Osborne. Um, that now we're fast forward another month. We've had Ben, um, now Amy's teaching school with Ben that obviously has no time in the morning, uh, to get me up. So I call Mike Osborne and I say, he works for FCA in Madison County. We had met once. I think I said, Mike, I bet you there's some of your guys. We can't really pay much money for someone to come uh, help me in the morning, but I need to get out of bed. And would any of your FCA guys, he might calls, he says, well, let me think about that. He calls back in three years, in three years. That would have been a long time in bed. He calls back in three days and he says, you know what? I really think I would like to do that. I'm going to take that on. For three years, he came over six mornings a week wow. for three years to, wow. to get me out of bed. And then that leads to Alan and David and Steve who have now done it for 15 years to help take uh, some of the load off Mike and then countless guys to where now a guy that can come over every day, all seven days. What all happened because Mike follows God's call in his life. He threw uh, aside every weight. He didn't want to be over six days a week at five o'clock. I can guarantee you at sometimes that didn't seem like what he wanted. But that's what he did. And Scott, over and over and over through the trials, you just see God's faithfulness to shower grace. His grace is sufficient times a thousand. And um, I, there's so many more of those stories. I can't even, it, it's overwhelming. It's fantastic. 
Papa, how about uh, reading for us 12 to 17? I'll be glad to. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may, be, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Oh, good. Thanks, Papa. I love that he comes off of verse um, 11, where note this, it all seems painful, um, not, not pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, what should we do? Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I love that. It, gets, it gives us an action plan as to what we should do. Mark, help us there. Yeah, so, I mean, again, we talk about this a lot. Uh, we tend to, I mean, this is me. I read the New Testament a ton more than I read the Old Testament, and uh, I often miss allusions to the Old Testament, and there's several in this paragraph that I think shed light uh, that commentators point to. So if, if, if we can turn to Isaiah 35 just for a second. Isaiah 35. So when he says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, I did not recognize that as being an Old Testament phrase, but, but it is, and it's in, an, it's in a significant chapter of Isaiah. So if, if you guys remember with Isaiah, uh, you get these glimpses of the future in Isaiah that are amazing, and uh, in chapter 34 and 35, you get a couple of sneak peeks of coming uh, things. In 34, you really get the fate of those who do not trust in the God of Scripture, uh, which is a much more negative passage on judgment in Isaiah 35, 34. Isaiah 35 is the positive, this is what happens to those who trust Yahweh and trust the Lord of the Bible. And just to read a few verses, look at verse 1. It's kind of this picture of returning from exile and this paradise kind of thing. Uh, 35.1 of Isaiah. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with singing. Uh, look at the end of that verse. They shall see the glory of the Lord the majesty of our God, and then here it is, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And then look at verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness, and the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. I really do think Christians were called the way in Acts not just because Jesus was the way, but because Jesus is probably picking up on this terminology, that, that the way of salvation in the Old Testament was this way, the way of holiness. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up, uh, up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, I think this is a beautiful background to Hebrews 12, 
Because where does Hebrews 12 end? It ends with this new Zion. We, we, we end up in Zion at the end of Hebrews 12, not Sinai. And where do you end up in Isaiah 35? You end up at Zion with, with everlasting joy. And so I think they're both moving to the same spot. And Hebrews is picking up on this theme of the runner, right? You're running on the way. And so you've got to lift your drooping hands, you runner, you know, strengthen your weak knees uh, and, and uh, keep, make a straight path for your feet. Well, he almost certainly has Isaiah 35 as his background to, to this, to this mm. section. So Isaiah 35, you've got a way of holiness, right? This way of holiness is as long as your life lasts before you get to the new Zion. And that way of holiness uh, is a long path that we must stay on. This is the narrow way that leads to life that Jesus talks about. And on that way, we will be tempted to become feeble and weak and to not continue on that path. Because, uh, you know, the way is hard that leads to life. And here he says, strengthen the knees, strengthen the hands, and continue on this way of holiness, making straight paths through your feet, because we know the destination is that Zion, that, that heavenly Jerusalem, which is where Hebrews 12 ends us with, getting to that heavenly city. And so I do think that this, this chapter in Isaiah likely influenced the author of Hebrews as he's sort of putting together this argument, I think. Well, that's great. That's a great connection. Pa uh, Papa, anything from 12 to 17? Well, I, I like the again. Mark mentioned the holy holiness, and and you know that holiness is mentioned in uh, what ten, and then again here in in fourteen. 14. And I think that's the the foundation of, of all these verses because he mentions righteousness and peace and so on. Righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So we're being trained by this discipline, and 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 the goal is the Zion, and and you know it's. Um, it's so encouraging to me. Uh, it says, see to it that no one fails to attain the grace of God and no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many come, become defiled. Um, you know, in this, in a, you know, in, in life or, or in this marathon, uh, you know, we've got to, we've got to watch our hearts. We've got to make sure that we don't become bitter and, and discouraged and, and, uh, uh, lose hope because that's what this is all about is 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 the endurance striving running the race uh not getting tangled up with sin and striving for this holiness uh without which no one will see god that's great papa 15 um they obtain the grace of god it seems as though kind of like jonah prayed from the uh the big fish um that you can forfeit grace with worthless idols and these worthless idols like sexual immorality or bitterness, those things that uh, will forfeit the grace of God. Scott, any thoughts from 12 to 17? Yeah. Uh, one thing that one guy said, he said, there's a race to be run. You'll never do that successfully. If you sit on the sidelines thinking how bad things are, which is like, if you're going through <laughs> suffering and you can just, we can be prone to slow down. Like the hill is too, to Steve, as we talked about earlier, you can just sit on the sidelines and wait. Well, there's a race to be run. We we have to run uh, the race, and that's part of the exhortation there that, that Mark mentioned uh, there. But I love 15 that, that Fred just just read. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And multiple people pointed out that there should be this pastoral care of Christians for each other. We should be looking out for each other to see if people are, are struggling or, or seeing if people are, are lagging behind in the race. And it, it made me think of 
one of my favorite Olympic moments is in 1992. Some of you may remember this Olympic moment. It was a semifinal race. I think it was a 400 meter perhaps race. There was a guy from Great Britain. His name was Eric Redmond. And about halfway through the race, he became injured back of his leg. And he basically just slumped over and the race is done. He tries to get up and starts, you know, limping forward. And his dad comes running and moving to tears watching it today. His dad comes running down, puts his arm around his son. His son is in tears, crying on his shoulder. And they both just walk to the finish line. I thought that is a beautiful picture of how we should be. When other Christians are struggling, we should see them. We should reach out to them. We should help them, pick them up and walk with them to, and encourage them. To, to run this race. That, that, that's just is how we should, should be. And I, some moments that just in my book club, when, when guys have maybe confessed certain sins and we've all come around to pray for them have been some mm. of the most powerful and people will still talk about it to this day, those nights where we pray for people in particular about specific sins and then seeing God answer those prayers uh, and helping guys get, get through this. I just think, yeah, we should have this pastoral care. I think mean, all the members should be on the lookout for others who are maybe hurting or lagging behind, and we should be encouraging each other to run this this race. No, that's great. Thank you, Scott. Those are that's a great word picture uh, again. There, the the root of bitterness that um, by it many become defiled. I just think bitter that encouragement can be contagious but how often a root of bitterness oh, yeah. can become contagious too papa well i, I i'm didn't mean to interject there but I, I just said oh yes i mean you know uh, who we've all been around people that complain and and that that is so you know after a while you just want to walk away or maybe tempted to join in so um I don't know. It's, it's contagious and we've got to guard against it. Yes. No, it is. And if you, if you find somebody that's not bitter, um, it's not fun to be bitter with the non bitter that <laughs> if they won't join in, I think that that puts a stop to the, to the bitterness often. And, uh, and I really, really find that with uh, our group at North Avenue. I'm so <laughs> thankful. I'm so thankful that bitterness uh, does, and I'm sure all of us struggle with it to some degree, but it doesn't rule the day. It's not rampant. It's not um, contagious to where there's a lot of bitterness in, in relationships or um, in things that we don't maybe uh, appreciate all the time. But a tremendous grace, this peace, again, this peace that uh, with everyone in verse 14, and, and certainly that comes from from holiness and by God's grace, I I would just say that that has been one of the the greatest experiences in the last four and a half years. Here is seeing the um, the lack of bitterness and the peace uh, among uh, those at North Avenue. Mark, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, just a number of commentaries pointed to this verse that I didn't know about Deuteronomy twenty nine eighteen and nineteen. And it seems to be the background partly to that section. So I just, I just read it because I, I was not aware of this verse. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 18 says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So, so I think that, that uh, this idea of continuing that theme in Hebrews of apostasy being a fear, you know, amongst the people. Here you've got someone in Israel who 
apostatizes. They, they turn from the true God to a foreign God, whether it's a man, a woman, a clan, or a tribe. And they almost become like a, they, they themselves become like a sort of a bitter root amongst the people that might, might harm others. And so it sounds like as well, this idea that people could fall into patterns that lead them away from the Lord that we've been discussing. Think about the effect that will have on the other people. Like even, even with church discipline being properly done, it doesn't get rid of the horrific effect of that. So if, if we had a you know, upstanding member of our church reject the gospel and turn away and, and, and leave to some sort of false religion, think about the, the poisonous effect that would have, even if they were disciplined. It, it would be such a, such a hard and it would probably be a damaging thing, I think, to other people around. So just, I think the, the warning there keeps going through Hebrews of, of the, the effects of, of uh, apostasy. No, so good. And, he's, and he ends on a strong note there on, uh, on 17. Scott, um, here's where we turn to you. Esau, um, he did the opposite of all these men of faith in that he went uh, instant gratification and, uh, and went after a, a bull of uh, stew um, and, and gave up his birthright. Um, he was not thinking ahead. Help us to understand this difficult but fascinating verse 17. Yeah, well, I think I think this is definitely Mark's domain because he, he preached on Esau. Uh, I actually listened to one of Mark's old ones today on Esau, so maybe, Mark, you, you want to take the first crack at this one. I think he would be the, the, the best on this one. Well, I mean, I, I, I want to hear from you guys on this too, but just I, I've been uh, struggling to understand this for a long time, and I think I slightly had a change of mind even more recently about some of this. I'm just – I think for me – one of the big questions is sort of what does 17 mean? Um, for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I think the, the word it could refer to either the repentance that he sought or to the blessing that he sought with tears. And I used to think it was the repentance, and it might be. Um, but I've become more persuaded even today reading through a, a number of different people a lot of people think it's the blessing itself. I know Al Mohler and uh, Schreiner and a bunch of people argue that direction. And um, that I, that's the way I'm sort of inclining right now is the idea that the, the blessing, because the story, you know, when he's weeping and saying, Dad, bless me, even me, oh, my father. It seems like the blessing is the thing that he wants, but he doesn't really want the Lord. He wants really the benefits, but he doesn't want the Lord himself. And so he's, he's uh, it seems to me that's some of what's going on, but I'd love to hear from you guys on that. Yep, pop up. I think, uh, you know, I think Esau, he desired God's blessing, but he didn't desire God. Yes. Um, you know, he wanted the, well, the blessing came to the firstborn. And technically, I guess he was the firstborn. But, you know, but he regretted, I think, just like with when we all sin, we, he regretted what he did, but he didn't repent. Um, he's an example of those who I, I wrote down who willfully sin against God and who are given no second chance because of their exposure to the truth and, and their advanced state of hardness. I mean, he, he kind of hardened his heart. Now he did, you know, he, he joined up with Jacob to bury their dad and, and, and so on. And, and he didn't, he didn't take out retribution on his brother for the, uh, for what his brother did to him. Uh, but you know, he, he, but then he married a Canaanite woman, which is again, uh, part of the immorality, I think might be part of the immorality, which was a no, no. You remember all the rest of the boys were sent to 
other places to get their wives to the kinsmen, but not Esau. And it's almost like he deliberately did that. So I I just, you know, the blessing was a really big deal. I think he he wanted the blessing more than he wanted to be blessed, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's that's good. Matthew Henry said Esau in his will um in his wickedness made the bargain and God in his righteous judgment ratified and confirmed it. Esau made the bargain and uh, it reminded me of Second Corinthians seven uh ten. I think a commentary or two pointed this way too for Godly grief brings repentance that leads to salvation. So we know it wasn't a godly grief because it didn't lead to a repentance that led to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So Mark, it could be you're right on there that it was a worldly grief. He was sad. He was sad because he lost the blessing. He wasn't uh, full of grief because he, he, he robbed God of the glory that God truly deserves. Scott? Yeah, yeah. There's one commentator said that he said uh, Esau wasn't sorry for his sin or depraved attitude, but only for its consequence. But yeah. then Tom Schreiner said this one line. He said, "Repentance isn't available forever." I thought he said this is a sobering warning. I think we need to take the, the sobering warning of it for sure that repentance isn't available forever. And I thought of Mark. I thought the story you told years ago in that sermon about I think it was the hawk coming down to grab some uh, some food, like he got his claws in this food, but there's a huge waterfall coming up. And maybe you could tell tell that story too. I think it fits in sort of with this. Yeah, that, that's from John Piper. And I, I have it in my Bible here, the vulture on ice. But uh, th- this thing kind of scares scares you and, and, and it should scare you into action, not into inaction. But the, the quick illustration, you have a, a chunk of ice, just imagining like say above Niagara Falls, you're in the winter and you've got, say, a dead animal carcass is on the ice and it's sort of floating towards the top of the waterfall. He says, well, imagine a vulture comes down and lands on that chunk of ice and starts eating. And he knows that any moment he can fly away because he's measuring the distance. And so he's wanting to have as much food as he can before the waterfall arrives. And he eats and looks up and eats and looks up and he's getting closer and closer. And finally, he gets right up to the edge of the waterfall. He's had as much of the carcass as he can get and he goes to flap his wings and he cannot fly away because his talons have frozen to the ice and the the chunk of ice goes over the waterfall and the bird is destroyed, this, this thing is destroyed. And that's a terrifying illustration, I think, of the idea of the picture here being, I'm not gonna cut off my hand or gouge out my eye. I'm going to feast on sin as long as I possibly can. I'm gonna rely on a deathbed conversion. I'm gonna rely on the thief on the cross kind of situation. I'm, I'm just gonna wait until the last second and I'm going to get serious about sin. A little bit of an Esau attitude here. And Piper just said, be wary because it may, there may come a point where you are so in love with your sin that your heart is just sealed to it, and you're no longer going to be able to just snap your fingers and get away. Uh, your heart may be just attached to your sin, and you may go over that waterfall. And that, that's not to say that people, people who are willing to repent will be saved. If you are genuinely repentant, you are saved. I don't care who you are. Uh, the thief on the cross was genuinely converted. But a person who's, who's banking on a last second conversion and lives a life of sin up until that moment may not be able to fly away like they think they'll be able to. And I think that's the part of the warning here. I do too. That's, that's, that's tremendous. Doesn't it remind us of Romans 1, uh, 24, God gave them over, gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up um, to a debased mind. Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait another day. Do not wait another day. There's certainly, uh, we know that we could die um, any second. We know that. But we also are not guaranteed of God's continual call to uh, wooing, to, uh, to, to know him. Um, and so repent, race to the cross, put your eyes on Jesus. The sin is 100% the destructive, and Christ is here to rescue us, to rescue us from, from that sin. Scott, any final thoughts for us? Yeah, I, I just wanted to mention, I, I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson, and uh, he said something about it. He said, I, I hope uh, at your, you're a part of a church where there are some gray hairs uh, who have been faithful to God for a long time. I thought about, I thought about Fred Schuler immediately, and he just said how important they are to the life of the church, where you can go, like young Christians can go to, to older Christians who've walked faithfully for so long, and you can just, you can talk to them, you can be encouraged by them. And so I speak for a lot of people, so thankful for, for you, Fred. Just last night when with my guy, Zach Petty, mentioned that uh, he hears you in his head saying, reject passivity. Like he hears your voice. Like we were talking about fighting against carelessness in 70. He said, I hear Fred Schuler in my ear saying, reject passivity. I and mean, just the impact you've had on, on so many guys at our church. I think you're just an inspiration. Even today, like you've spent time studying Hebrews 12. Like you're just, you're running the race. You're persevering. You're just such an encouragement to, to so many. So just so thankful for Fred Schuler. Yeah, no, I, I cannot not agree more. Throw in uh, um, David Linder. Um, your guys' dad, Pastor McAndrew, uh, we need godly men that have run this race so well um, to look to. And, uh, and then certainly um, to continue to feast on the Old Testament where this uh, great cloud of witnesses is there too. Mark, any final thoughts? No, I think that, that's, that's great. Papa. Could you uh, wrap things up with uh, however you would like and, and also pray for us? Yes, thank you, Jerry. Um, I'd like to thank you for uh, Hebrews. Uh, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible, particularly in the, in the New Testament. And, and I, I just love it that we're camped out here in, in 12 or 11 and, and 12 as we were last week. And uh, I'm thinking also of Hebrews 3 where... Lord, you say, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. So there's an urgency here about this decision. Uh, we don't want to be like the buzzard that's on the uh, piece of ice. Uh, if we hear his voice today is the day that we, uh, we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for this um, study this afternoon and uh, for the blessing of being together with brothers in Christ and for the gift of your spirit to help us and the gift of your word to enable us and speak to us. Uh, we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus, the Lord, the perfecter, the author of our faith. Amen. Amen.